right, so uh, this week, I, <laughs> this week, I've had piles of books, piles of books, because I've been scratching my head and saying, what do I do with chapters six and seven? Like, it, it, some of this stuff is material that's been covered, and so I'm not going to touch that, and some of this stuff is, is just so, um, well, let's put it this way. I might not look at you in the eye after today's sermon, um, <laughs> Because we're going through the song of songs. And uh, it's, it might be, like I even said in one sermon, the Bible's not prudish, so you shouldn't be either. And that was more for me than it was for you. So uh, I'll just say that right, on, uh, right off the bat. But I do want to make this little distinction in the book before we dive right into what we're going to dive into today. And by the way, if you just open your Bibles to Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, it might be printed in your Bible to chapter 6, and just go ahead and stick your thumb there. We're going to be there in a moment. And that is this. There are many commentators who, who suggest, who, who throw this out there, that in the garden is this imagery, the garden imagery. It's, it's spoken about all through the book. That is the place, the, the garden or the countryside, or as today we're going to see in the nut orchard or in the vineyard. These are all, this is all garden metaphor. And that that's in, in here is where lovemaking happens in the Song of Songs. In the city, last week we saw this, in the city, she's running through the city and she finds the guards and the guards abuse her and, and the city's a dangerous place. And so there's been some commentators, and I really resonate with this view, that the garden is a picture of redeemed sexuality from back in Eden. That's what the garden symbolizes. This, this redeemed view of it, where, whereas you, you move over here to the city, and it, it's sort of this picture of the exile out of the garden, and, and what humanity has done with sexuality, and how broken it is. And so it's this really interesting view. And so today, um, we're just peering deeper into that garden. And so that's why I might not look at you directly in the eye afterwards. Um, Chapter 6, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read, I'm going to just pause along the way, because we're really, here's the deal. I'm reading two entire chapters of this today, and um, we're pausing right in the middle, and because the middle informs what happened before, and it informs what happens after. That's why we're only talking really about the middle. Um, If I had the time to break down every single passage for you, you would realize some of these don't necessarily have um, practical application significance. So as a pastor, one of the things I have to do is say, what is practical for you? What are you going to walk away with? And so we're doing the practical application stuff today. And some of this stuff, if you've been with us throughout this whole series, you're going to go, oh, I've heard that. I've heard that. That's, that's language I've already heard. So we're starting in verse 4, because if you remember, we went to verse 3 last week in chapter 6. You are beautiful as Tizra, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. Turn your eyes from me. They overwhelm me. Isn't that nice? He's like, don't look at me. It's so overwhelming when you look at me because you're so beautiful. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Giad. Remember, we talked about that. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. None of them is missing. Again, repeated language. Your temple behind your veils are like the halves of pomegranate. Sixty queens there may be and eighty concubines and virgins beyond number, but my dove, my perfect one is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The young woman saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. 
So like I said, this is a common formula. This is the formula the man is, has given before to his bride, talking about how beautiful she is. Remember, we called that a, a wasp, which is a, an, an Arabic word to, for at wedding times, um, the, the bride and groom described each other. And so he's doing this again. And then she'll describe him and he'll describe her. And they all describe each other all the time. Um, I'd, I'd be really interested to find out if any of you have worked that into like dinner time. It's like, ooh, the mashed potatoes on your beard are amazing. <laughs> but he points her out and he singles her out. And even, and, and this is where you need to have like a little bit of cultural grace for the king of Israel at this time. 60, um, 60 queens, uh, 80 concubines. And a concubine wasn't always a sexual thing. It was usually like a helper, but it was also a sexual thing because they had children with concubines and things like this. But, but essentially he's saying 60 queens and 80 concubines and countless virgins, but you're the one for me. So again, Going back to the, let's not judge the Bronze Age by 21st century standards and let's be kind to the king of Israel. Um, let's keep going. Verse, uh, verse 10. Who is it that appears like the dawn? This is the friend speaking. Who is it that appears like the dawn? Fair as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic as the stars in procession. And then he says, I went to the grove of the nuts to look for new growth in the valley, to see the vines had bubbled of the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I realized, my desires set me among the royal chariots of my people. Let me pause here again. Pretty much in the Song of Songs, if you're really struggling with the interpretation, like with what we just read, um, just think this. They're probably talking about sex and then reread it. Let's keep going. Because <laughs> we're not going to dwell on that today. Friends, the friends say, come back, come back, O Shulamites, come back that we may gaze on you. And then he says this, why would you gaze on the Shulamite as on the dance of Mahinim? Mahanim. I'm, I've got a friend who is a Hebrew scholar and he's working, me with, working on me with this word, Mahanim. So first and foremost, this is the first time and the only time that she is called a Shulamite. And so the question is, what does that mean? Like, why is it that it took all the way to verse, chapter 6 for her friends to say the Shulamite? After the wedding, they say this, Shulamite. It's a double meaning. One, it could denote that she's from the town of Shanim. But there's a deeper meaning here. The Shulamite, the root word for that is Solomon. Solomon is her husband. They got married, and then all of a sudden, after their marriage, after, after they consummated the marriage, she's called the Shulamite, the, the bride of Solomon, basically. And she's called this because her friends are looking at her saying, this is a picture of what it looks like that the two are one flesh, that their identities become wrapped up in an, one another, so much so that they changed her name and called her the, they don't know if they changed her name, but they essentially they call her a Shulamite. Because her name is wrapped in with that of Solomon. Her identity is beginning to be wrapped up in that of Solomon. Like I said, it's a picture of the garden of the two becoming one flesh. So these are her friends. They call her the Shulamite. And then he repeats the the Shulamite. And then he says, why are you gazing on her as in the dance of Mahanim? Don't look at her. She's dancing for me. So what is the dance of Mahanim? And this is why we might not look at each other eye to eye right after this sermon. Traditionally, it, let, me, let me say this. I have a book that's 800 pages on the Song of Songs. 
they, they give like 60 pages to this dance because of all the possible theories that it could be. We're not entirely sure. Like we don't, we don't have like, oh, this is definitely it. This is one theory. But we know the two strongest. And so that's what I'm going to give you today because I think it preaches Christ and him crucified, which is, I, I'm going to say that and then we're going to get there and you're going to go, oh, okay, I get it. First, there's a physical level and a spiritual level as to what this dance is. The physical level is that she just dances naked for her husband. So no laughing, no good. We're not going to look at each other after this. We're just going to keep walking as if nothing happened. Okay, this is the dance of Mahanim. It has two core meanings. And, and so this guy, Marvin Pope, who is the, the authority of the song, guy, book on Song of Songs, basically says this is an erotic dance, um, which happens only between husband and wife. He even says, so why are you looking at her? This is for us. Don't look at her. Don't gaze upon her. And, and he describes the dance in chapter 7. That's what chapter 7 is. It's a description of the dance. And so if you look at it, it says, How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the, the work of an artist's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. I mean, like, how sexy is that? Hey, sweetie, your waist is a mound of wheat, like a mound, you know? It's like, anyways, no, it denotes fertility, and it's a very nice thing back in those times to say. Your breasts are like two fawns, the, the twin fawns of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are the pools of Heshbon by the gates of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon looking towards Damascus. I know, I always love it. It's like, your nose is huge. I love it. Uh, people with big noses appreciate that. Your head is, your head crowns you like Mount Carmel. Carmel. Your hair is like a royal tapestry. The king is held captive by his treatise. How beautiful are you, how pleasing, my love with your delights. Your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts are the cluster of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. You're laughing because you know what that means, Right? People call me the space cowboy. No? Really love your peaches. All right. You know because it's, our culture still talks like that. That was Steve Miller band for those of you who missed out on that. Some of you did not. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, may your breast be like a crust, cluster of grapes on the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples in your mouth, like the best wine. And then she responds, may the wine go straight to my beloved, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my beloved. My desire is his de- and his desires for me. Come, my beloved, let us go to the countryside. Again, the countryside. Let us go spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their uh, blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes sent out their fragrance, and the door is every delicacy, both old and both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my beloved. So there is this beautiful language. And the reason why I couch this sermon in the very beginning with these, this picture of the garden versus the city is because this is a picture of what redeemed sexuality looks like. Even though I'm a little bit bashful saying all this stuff, there's really no need to be bashful about all this, about what's going on. That's just my own insecurity there. 
So again, just like other passages, these couples go to lovemaking a couple times in the text. But one of the things I want to talk about is this dance of Mahanin. There's pretty much no question that among scholars that they're saying, yep, she is dancing naked for her husband. But this is a picture, again, of Adam and Eve in the garden being naked and feeling no shame. When you think about what's happening in this dance, um, it's, it's, there's a modern parallel to the private strip show, but it's like sort of the opposite, and that would be the public strip show, right? The striptease bar. And so you've got these two side by side. What's happening privately in a bedroom and, and what happens now and what's happened for centuries, really, the, this public show of lust. One is pure passion, and it's a good thing, and it's God-ordained, and the other is the corruption of a natural desire. The strip club is defined by lust and impure thoughts, whereas the marriage bed is naked and unashamed. Lust is a very strong sexual desire that is impure. Lust is misplaced passion. Here's what I want you to see. All sin, sin is, many of you have probably heard in church before, sin is missing the mark, and that is absolutely true. But I, I've got a, a little bit of a better definition for sin, and, and I think it encompasses a little bit more. Sin is merely a corruption of a natural desire. It's a corruption of a natural desire. So do you naturally desire, do you have natural sexual desires? Yes, absolutely. Lust is a corruption of that. It is perfectly natural to have sexual desire for the person whom you love. But God built into people, and I think pre-sin in the Garden of Eden, there, there was definitely sex between Adam and Eve. And again, it doesn't say that explicitly in the Bible. It, it's implicit, but I think there's, that's what it means by the two became one flesh. There was nothing sinful about it. There was pure passion before the fall, and I think that that was a good thing. Here's what I want to look at. Jesus talked about lust. Because this, this could easily be taken out of context, this dance of Mahanin. It could easily be taken out of context and say, well, see, this other stuff is okay. Right? But I want to talk about this because lust is one of those unspoken about things in our society that is gradually crumbling the foundations of the morals of our society. And I want to talk about it for a second. Matthew 5, 27 through 28, Jesus addresses it. He says this, You have read what it is said, you should not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. So we're going to have an altar call. and We have spoons up here for this bucket for eyes. So if anybody's... Jesus is addressing men here. He didn't say ladies, let me tell you. He knows that this is an issue with men. And, and is it an issue with ladies? Absolutely. Absolutely. Statistically, we know that the, the problem and the scourge of pornography, there's a reason why it's targeted towards men. Because more men deal with this lust issue than do women. And, and there's a reason why that's the entire market, is men. But inside the protection of marriage... The dance of Mahanim is what it looks like to be naked and unashamed. But outside of the protection of marriage, it's called pornography. Inside, the protection of the vows, great.
outside the protection of the vows? Pornography. Outside of marriage, this dance would be intended to cater, to, to, to bring up lusts within the man. So men, primarily, statistically, pornography was created for you. That's, you're the target audience. It, it's, it's you. It's not necessarily your wife. It's not the ladies. It's you. So how do we take Jesus seriously when he says, gouge out your eyes or, or cut off your hand? I mean, there would be, if, if we were to take Jesus literally at this point, all of our eyes would be gouged out. All of our hands would be cut off. I mean, we, we would be in trouble men, wouldn't we? But here's what I think Jesus is, is trying to say. Even if you gouge out your eyes, you're still going to have lust in your heart. Even if you cut off your hands, you're still going to have lust in your heart. You'll have a bloody stump and lust. I mean, you'll be in trouble, right? So how do you gouge out the things in your life that cause you to stumble sexually? Is it gouging out a premium movie channel at your home? Is it gouging out those certain TV shows or movies that you swear are okay? Is it gouging out people you follow on Instagram because maybe sometimes they post some stuff that you shouldn't see? Is it maybe your smartphone in your pocket is your number one problem? Then I tell you what, they make flip phones. I'm not, I'm not joking. They make flip phones. Go turn it in. You'll get money back. You'll be, have a less of a bill. Your lust issue, that will be help, it'll help. It'll be taken, not won't be taken care of, but it'll, it'll help. But gouge that out of your life. I, I follow a bunch of skateboarders on Instagram. And, you know, because I've told you I love to skateboard and stuff like that. And the algorithm of Instagram, when you go to the explore functions, brings me up to people they follow. And so as soon as I started following them, all of a sudden I started getting butt pics. Butt pictures. I'm like, I don't want to look at a bunch of butts. And so I told my wife, I said, listen, I still want to follow these skateboarders because I, I love watching their new tricks. But I said, I want to show you what I'm doing. There's this little button that, that goes, hide this from my stream. I don't want to see this. And every time I saw that, I, I was gouging that out of my stream until eventually the algorithm was like, okay, we got it. Pastor Dave doesn't want to see butt pics anymore. And, and they don't show up anymore. And I don't have a problem with it. I just didn't want to have a problem with it. And so I gouged it out of my stream. And, and I just want to encourage you, what do you need to gouge out of your life? Men, talking to you. What do you need to gouge out? If you're married and you don't know, turn to your wife and say, what do I need to gouge out of my life? She knows. Temptations will always exist. But I think what Jesus is saying by gouging things out of your life by that very process and that very act of gouging things out, what you're doing is you're building an even better habit in your life, an even better thing. It is called self-control. Because I think that's really what Jesus wants for you is self-control. So how do you gouge that out? And by gouging that out, you bring in self-control. So keep that up, men. So, but again, let's go back to this dance here. The woman is dancing. Um, for her husband, and they take measures to ensure that they only have eyes for each other. The man says, quit looking. This is just for us. They keep the marriage bed protected in private. And I want to encourage you to do that as well. But this is her invitation to intimacy. And I, I want you to get this. The same person who wrote this text, Solomon, also wrote this, Proverbs five, fifteen through 20. It says this, drink water from your own cistern. And he's not talking about water, okay? 
Drink water from your own cistern, running water from out of your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, should your streams water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and you rejoice in the wife of your youth. See, now he connects the water to marriage. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? I think what the Bible is saying is that when you focus long-term on your satisfaction with your spouse, then that short-term temptation goes away. Because isn't that what it is? It's simply short-term temptation. Will you have this long-term relationship happen? And that short-term thing causes you to think short-term and to where you can make short-term decisions and explode the long-term joy and happiness of your marriage. So I want to encourage you here, men and women, think long-term in your marriage. Apply some of these verses. Apply this, this Proverbs verse. I want to talk just two points about pure passion because that's what was happening in the dance of Mahanim was pure passion. Two points about that. Pure passion is patient. And there are alliterations because I'm a pastor and it's more holy when you use all Ps. Pure passion is patient. Pure passion is patient. Pure passion is patient. If you read the Song of Songs over and over and over and over again, I was locked up. I'm a locked up vineyard for my, for my groom. They were patient. They valued virginity. They, they were patient with each other. They took time with each other. They cultivated their love. It, it, it wasn't like this super fast thing. And I want to warn you against that. Relationships that are just super fast and intense. Why? Because you don't build intimacy. And this is her invitation to intimacy. Two, pure passion is protection. Again, more peace. Pure passion is protection. It's protection. When, when you have, I'm not saying literally the dance of Mahanim in your home, but when you have an open, oh, oh gosh, I almost said open relationship. That was just something totally different than, than what I'm trying to go for. When you and your spouse cultivate intimacy on a regular basis together, it is absolutely protection against lust and pornography and things like that. Absolutely. Now, guys, you still need to cultivate self-control, even if it's a season where you can't do that on a regular basis. You still need to cultivate self-control. That's still a biblical value. But here's what he's saying. This sort of dance stokes the fires of intimacy in marriage. And I'm not saying you should all run home and dance for each other, but what I'm saying is that um, when you see this man and woman, they're always concerned with stoking the fires of passion within one another. That, that's just in the back of their mind. So married people, I just want you to be concerned with that. Now I said there's two layers of meaning to this dance. There's the physical, in which I just explained to you. And then now there's the spiritual layer of meaning. This is a really interesting one, and this is why there, there's like one explanation for the physical and then like a hundred explanations for what the spiritual meaning could be. And this is the one that makes the most sense to me because it's supported by the Bible. Genesis chapter 32 verse 1 says this. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanim. 
The same as the dance. It's the only other place that the word is mentioned in Scripture. Now, what is Jacob doing? If you remember, let me, let me just give you a quick history lesson. Lesson: Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, okay? Jacob was sort of uh, dishonorable towards his father, towards his brother. He stole a birthright. He lied. He cheated. He, st- he stole. He sort of had to go in exile from his family. And then he goes to his uncle Ab- Laban, who he cheated. And <laughs> he took the, the speckled sheep, who he bred to be stronger, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, he has to leave because his uncle's all mad at him. And then now he's got to go and he realizes, where do I go with all these families, with all these kids, with all these animals? I've got to reconcile with my brother Esau. So he comes to the spot where he's going to reconcile with his brother Esau. And he calls this place Mahanim. It, it, it means the two camps. That's all that means is the two camps. And, and so if you look at the title of this sermon, we talk about the dance of two camps because that's what this is. It's the dance of two camps. And it's not two army camps coming together to battle each other and, and to kill each other. It's two camps coming together to be stronger together, to reconcile together, and to work together. That's what it is. That's the picture of it. And now, marriage for millennia has all been about war alliances. If you think about it, that's what most marriages have been. And you know, it's about this tribe and this tribe intermarrying so that they could become peaceful. And the way they did that was this. A Bedouin, this is a Bedouin tradition. By the way, the Bedouin are the nomadic tribes around Israel and Palestine in that area. In fact, if you go to Israel today, you could still sleep in a Bedouin tent. I've done that, got no sleep at all because I was with 30 other snoring men. Didn't sleep. Walked out into the desert because I thought I'd get some cool photos. Had a couple Bedouin dogs chase me and bark at me. I listened to Bear Grylls, picked up a rock. They ran away. So didn't get eaten by dogs. Anyways, Bedouins, they've been around for centuries. This is one of the cultures closest to the culture at the time that this was written. Here's what the Bedouin tribes people would do. They would go to their neighboring tribe to, to get a wife. And uh, usually this was already arranged and picked out. It wasn't like, hmm, I'll take that one. You know, this was prearranged. So they would go there and they would bring a lamb. And, and the Bedouin husband would slaughter the lamb in the, in the tent before the father. And, and he would say that this blood, they would make a blood covenant right there with the blood of the lamb that would cover the bride. Are you smelling what I'm stepping in? Do you get what I'm saying? That, that the blood of the lamb would cover the bride. And over and over and over again, this ritual was, was repeated over and over and over again in marriage ceremonies. The blood of the lamb covered the bride. It even symbolized Jacob and Esau reconciling and all this stuff because, because um, there, were, there were sacrifices and things made for peace. For centuries, this dance has, has, has come to known. This dance has been come to known, be known. Sorry, sometimes I just can't say words. For centuries, this dance has come to be known. This dance for peace and reconciliation between two groups. Early, early Christians looked at this dance and said, because of its connection to Esau and Jacob, it's the coming together of Jews and Gentiles. They looked at this and said, it's the coming together of Christ and his church. That's what they said this dance symbolized. Now, I want to give you this other verse, too. And we're going to talk, in two weeks, we're going to talk about this really in depth, okay? Because next week, we're going to be done with the Song of Songs. And then the next week, we're going to talk about Ephesians 5 in a lot more depth. And then we're done with the series. 
But Ephesians 5, 21 through 32 says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do for the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but uh, fed and cared for their body. But they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Now, I want to pause right there before I read the last verse. Now, Paul is saying to the church, husbands, wives, Here's all these lists of regulations. Let me just lay them all out for you. And he's laying them all out. And then he says this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Do you get this? Paul lays out all these commands for marriage, and then he says, do you get what I'm really saying is happening here? Your marriage needs to come to symbolize. It needs to be a symbol for the way that Jesus acts with his church. In fact, your marriage needs to put the gospel on display. And that's what he's trying to say here. Is that husbands, you need to look just like Jesus and wives. You need to look like the church. And, and, and you guys need to be that way for each other. And it's a peace that brings you together. It looks like reconciliation. He's saying, do you get that marriage is supposed to be about peace? Do you get that marriage is supposed to be about forgiveness, like what this dance was for? Do you get that marriage is supposed to be about reconciliation? Do you get that marriage is like the coming together of these two camps? It's like the coming together of Christ and the church. It's just this microchasm. Do you get that your marriage should put the gospel on display? So today, men, I want to encourage you. Be Jesus for your wife. Be Jesus for your wife. Wives, I want to encourage you today. Be the church to your husband. You were the bride of Christ, brought with the blood of the Lamb, just as the earth, they, they did this for centuries and centuries and centuries. You're the bride of the Christ, brought, bought with the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus was on the cross, that was literally the blood of the Lamb paying for the sins of this church. And as we, as we close this up today, I want to just have a couple applications to this. One, if you're married, I just want to encourage you to invite pure passion and pure intimacy into your marriage. To invite each other to intimacy on a regular basis. Because I think that's important. I think it's protection. I think it's great for you. And, and I, w- I want to encourage you too that maybe you're here today and you're not married. Maybe you're here and you're single. And I just want to say that Jesus is inviting you to peace, whatever that looks like. He's inviting you to peace. He's inviting you as almost, he's not dancing Mahim, but he's almost that guy on the cross, right, who's naked and unashamed, pouring out the blood for the church, for you, saying, come to me and find peace. I know it's kind of a strange connection, but it's there that Jesus is inviting you to peace today by his blood, through his blood.
today as we close in prayer. I'm going to invite the ushers to come forward in a moment here, and we're going to take communion. We do that once a month here. Or we actually do that twice a month here. Uh, we do that twice a month, and, and we do that because it's not only a proclamation, but it's a peace meal. That's part of Mahina. It's part of the two camps coming together to reconcile with the Savior. John Wesley called this a means of grace. And what he meant by that is this could be a moment for you that God simply wants to speak into your life. This could be a moment for you where God wants to say some stuff to you. And and so pay attention. So listen up. So as we close in prayer today, I want to invite the ushers to come forward. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for all this stuff that's in the Bible that is sometimes hard to reconcile, sometimes hard to understand. But we thank you that it's there as a picture of how beautiful it is in your garden. And so, God, we, we all strive to live under your garden, back in Eden with you. God, forgive those of us who need to be forgiven. Father, there are people here today who are struggling with lust and desire, and we pray that, that, that you would use this moment to break them of that and to speak into their lives on that. Father, we pray that you would use this time uh, to, to speak to people as, as they receive communion, to speak your love and your heart into their lives. Lord God, we thank you for your scriptures. We thank you for this time of partaking of the supper that you gave to your disciples 2,000 years ago. Lord, may you speak your love and your peace into each person's life here today. In your name we pray. Ushers, if you'll come forward.